So, you want to talk about what's been happening in the uh, world of uh, Linux and open source software? Yeah, well, I mean, we are in Canada and a little bit to the north of us. It's gotten really, really cold for September. And so maybe this is the start of hell freezing over because Richard Stallman has spoken at a Microsoft conference. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, you know, I have I have some thoughts about that, but but I want to I want to hear your thoughts about that. What do you think of the idea that Richard Stallman, uh, the saint of open source, don't, uh, decided to speak at Microsoft? Um, I think I guess it was inevitable because at least from what I can tell, um, he's starting to run out of people to piss off. <laughs> And so any audience is a good audience. I mean, I sat in on a meeting of the Toronto Linux user group where he walked out in the middle of a presentation because somebody in the audience refused to call it a Linux, uh, sorry, insisted on calling it a Linux system and not a GNU slash Linux system. Yes, I remember many years ago when I very, the very first time that I met Richard uh, was at, uh, it was at, I don't know, a Linux con somewhere. And so he's at Linux con and we're in a room together and he walks up to me and he said, uh, um, you know, and, and by way of introduction, instead of saying what normal people say, which is, hi, how are you? Glad to meet you, blah, blah. You know, all these other little pleasantries. He started off with, um, hey, don't you think it would be better if you gave credit where credit was due? And of course I'm thinking, I always give credit. I write articles. I list the author of, of the particular software that I'm reviewing or that I'm talking about. I talk about the people who are, you know, who are the developers, who are the people working on this as much as possible. Uh, but of course, he was talking about calling it GNU Linux as opposed to calling it Linux. And of course, I, I don't want to spend a long, long time on this, but um, um, I, I've made it fairly clear that if, you know, at the risk of confusing everybody in the entire world, um, you know, Linux is probably a good place to stop. I mean, um, if you want to be technical, you should call it GNU slash Mozilla slash Postfix slash SendMail slash Apache slash, you know, every conceivable group or organization that goes into making a Linux distribution. So. I, I, I think that just muddies the water for people, especially back in the early days when we were trying to reach people with the idea that there was such a thing out there as Linux and open source. Yeah, uh, I, I, I hear your pain and felt it myself at the time. It got me angry enough that at one point I actually started counting lines of code in a Linux <laughs> to try and see, okay, so who actually generated the bulk of it? And I don't even think the GNU project generated the bulk of it, if, if you were actually going to say, you know, who contributed the most. So, yes, there's historical roots and there's philosophical roots and so on, and, and, and that's understood. But, I mean, for the brevity of language, uh, just being able to say a Linux system, people understand what that means. And there's a whole lot of things that go along with calling something a Linux system that is everything from you know the distribution to the kernel to whatever is added to it and to GUIs and everything. So, I mean, the term Linux system is sort of all encompassing anyway, and to try and be language police on top of that because you don't think you got enough credit, just, I don't know, just seemed to uh, 
shall we say not make him any not you know the 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 the, i think the big difference between you and i in this uh in this situation is that i didn't get angry i just didn't care enough (laughs) you know it was like it, it, it didn't bother me. I sort of knew what to expect anyway. I mean, I had been I had been warned or told beforehand, and quite frankly, you know, it unrolled as expected. And um, it was just interesting that you know it happened before any of the normal pleasantries that you get. You know, the hello, how are you? Nice to meet you stuff. So, well, so I'm 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 going to tell you what I think about uh, about this. You use the word inevitable, okay? But you uh, you said you know. Uh, need new audiences or whatever. I, I think it's inevitable because, you know, Linux is everywhere. We're the, uh, we're the establishment now. You know, Matt used, uh, you know, our, our mutual friend Matt used the, uh, the line, uh, stole a line from uh, Batman, The Dark Knight, uh, which was spoken by Two-Face, which is, you either die a hero or you live long enough to, to uh, become a villain. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Linux is Linux is the establishment. It's what everybody runs. It's what every major corporation runs. It's what pretty much every web server on the internet, every server farm, Amazon, Google, you name it. Uh, it's kind of hard to think of yourself as the little guy these days. And uh, from Microsoft's perspective, being a big company, uh, you know, because you know they are a big company, um, you know, Linux is just another thing in their toolkit these days. It's you know, it's, it's nothing special. You gotta admit this charm offensive is something else. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. they've gone out of their way. And to me, this invitation to Stallman is just sort of the latest, hey, look at us. Aren't we friendly to open source and free software? And why aren't you guys paying more attention to us? We're being friendly to you, aren't we? And uh, it, 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 it's fun to watch. Well, at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, the desperation in trying to get our attention, let alone our love, just is, is a source of entertainment these days. You know, I, I, don't, I don't actually know that that's it. I, I guess I'm a little bit less cynical about what Microsoft's, um, what Microsoft's position is on trying to get the attention, as you say, of the open source community, because they're, they're all in. I mean, they're a member of the Linux Foundation these days. So I, I don't know that they have to try particularly hard, um, you know, uh, unless they're trying to get the faithful on their side, so to speak. Uh, you know, the true believers, as uh, I've often been referred to uh, when it comes to Linux and open source software. Um, but I, I don't know that that's what, what they're trying to do. I think they're, I, I don't think it's a charm offensive. I think it's just um, what any and every big company does, you know, uh, to, to um, how can I put this, to expose their people to the different technologies that they work with. And uh, for that matter, you know, possibly the philosophies behind the technologies that they work with. Uh, I don't yeah, think it's anything more than that. But then how do you explain the invitation to Richard Stallman? Certainly Microsoft must know more than most entities about what's involved in an open source line, uh, license. Mm-hmm. You know, what you need to do, what makes something open source, what makes something not open source, what makes something free software or not. They didn't need to be lectured in person by Richard Stallman about the legalities. I'm sure Microsoft has more lawyers than most Linux organizations and, and <laughs> Um, so 
the, the, the act of inviting him, the reason we're talking about it right now, to me, is smacks a publicity stunt. And, you know, it serves both Stallman's purpose, because he's still looking for audiences that he hasn't burnt bridges with, and Microsoft that's looking for some love uh, with the knowledge that, you know, they, they had a lot of scorched earth a decade ago that I don't think is still totally undone yet. Well, I don't know that it's totally undone, but I'm not sure that they're losing anything by, you know, that old scorched earth policy uh, that you're talking about. I, I, I mean, they have access to all the technology. Hell, they own GitHub, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and one of the big things that happened when they bought GitHub, if you remember, there was all this speculation. There were a lot of people that were really upset about that. And uh, I wrote about it, as you know. And, um, and people thought there's going to be this massive outpouring that like people are just going to take their projects out of GitHub and, you know, migrate everything over to GitLab. And you know what? There was like a blip that lasted two or three days and then it was over. So I, I don't know that there's a lot left for them to win um, in terms of, you know, if not support, uh, not outright hostility. And in fact, the people they haven't won over yet, they may not even care about because that isn't necessarily their customer base. Exactly. They're, they're looking to make money off corporate customers. And if those people are satisfied that, that Microsoft gets open source, that might just be enough. You know, let me just, let me give you one other alternative uh, on this whole thing, which is this. If you've ever watched some of those Google Talks on the internet, uh, where they invite, uh, you know, a famous person and, you know, you name it, any kind of a field whatsoever. In fact, I've been to some of these talks. Uh, I, was, I was at one here at the Google offices in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo, um, a year and a half or two ago, uh, where the speaker, the invited speaker was my friend, Robert Sawyer. And, um, you know, like that doesn't have anything to do with Google's core business. It's just something that, the company does to to keep their employees interested by offering them you know um, interesting people to listen to and you know interesting points of view and it may not be directly related to their core business in any way other than here's an interesting person you know for you to listen to for an hour or half an hour or whatever yeah i can't disagree i mean i i, I like those talks myself all right, shall we talk about hey, let's 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 leave that one behind for the moment and we'll that's that's in the hell freezing over department. And hell's been freezing over a lot lately. I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, it started back in 2016 when Trump was elected. Oh, sorry. I didn't think I was going to go there. Um, hey, let's talk about the idea that Linux Journal is gone. The original magazine of the Linux community has died for the second time, and this time it looks like it's permanent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly I don't have as much of a stake in it as you did. I never wrote for them. Uh, at one point they were even the competition during my brief stint at ZDNet. Uh, but I mean, I always read it, whether it was online, I occasionally even bought a couple of copies. I don't think I ever had a subscription, but I managed to have an idea of where they were at most of the time. Certainly I was reading a lot of your stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, I, I think what happened was a lot of a, a lot of the LJ content sort of fall, fell into a couple of categories. 
some of which was how-to stuff. And now as the internet is expanding, if somebody just says, how do I dot, dot, mm -hmm. dot, anything to do on a Linux system, and you're going to find YouTube videos, you're going to find massive amounts of text, and, and likely even find paid courses at places like Coursera and lynda.com to, uh, to, to, to get what you need from it. So a lot of that how-to stuff uh, is either redundant or available really, really easily by people. Uh, and, you know, then there is the analysis stuff. And, of course, the Internet is, if nothing else, uh, no shortage of people's opinions and analyses. Um, and so I think part of the problem that they ran into was just finding a unique niche for themselves. You know, what were you going to find at Linux Journal that you weren't going to find anywhere else? And, you know, besides, you know, the input, you know, the columns you did, the stuff Mad Dog did, and so on, uh, I think they were having a, a problem just sort of getting that unique niche of why would you come here as opposed to opensource.com or any one of a number of different places on the internet or elsewhere to get info. Well, since you pointed out opensource.com, we should probably point out as well that it, it was a free, as in, you know, uh, free as in beer. It didn't cost anything from the beginning. So it was just a matter of pointing to a website and getting the stuff. Now, opensource.com had the support of Red Hat and now, of course, the support of IBM. Um, so that helped it go on its own. Whereas really, when you came right down to it, Linux Journal was always a you know, always required um, subscribers, you know, people willing to plunk down their money on a monthly basis to keep the whole thing going. And I think that, I think that niche isn't a problem so much as people have gotten used to getting the information that they want free. In other words, I don't have to pay for any of these things. And that's not to say that, you know, as somebody wrote an article, which I, which I had, um, uh, which I had uh, real issues with, which was, uh, you know, Linux users are cheap. That's why Linux Journal died. And I don't think that Linux users are any cheaper than anybody else is. I mean, we're living in a world where things are essentially free. Um, even things like Netflix, for instance. I mean, I, pay, I have a subscription to Netflix, but the fact of the matter is um, that's nothing compared to what I used to spend renting videos years ago back in the days of Blockbusters you know, or blockbuster video, you know, when you'd, you'd rent a couple of movies and that was like, you know, six bucks for your weekend. And you did that like, you know, two, three nights a week. And maybe you did it, you know, a dozen times a month. Well, 10 bucks at Netflix is nothing compared to that. It's essentially free. And keeping an organization going where you actually have to pay people. And that's, that's, that's a big one there. You have to pay people means that you have to bring in money somehow. And, um, and, in a world where information is free, not, not information wants to be free, but information is effectively free, um, I don't know how that's sustainable. I mean, Linux Journal is hardly the only publication that has folded over the years for lack of, of uh, revenue. So, and I don't think it'll be the last either. I, I think that there, I don't believe that there's a way to turn back the clock on free, you know, or the expectation that things are essentially free. Well, I mean, we're getting into a, into a conversation, I think, that's much bigger than Linux and open source. I mean, generally, mm -hmm. you know, uh, business models and journalism, you know, you have greats like Time and Newsweek, you know, massive publications that have shrunk down to a fraction of their existing size. You know, really, really famous publications like Life Magazine totally folding except for specials. So, 
absolutely you know especially in the printed version it just is really really difficult to for anyone to have a going concern of this um i'm hoping you know you and i sort of come from a journalistic background and i'm sort of hoping that eventually there'll be a bit of a backlash uh, that that is just against the sheer volume of crap that's out there masquerading as journalism masquerading as informed analysis and i'm hoping that eventually the pendulum will come back that there will start to be some trusted sources of of information that uh you know the brand will mean something of the web in something of the portal that it will have some quality writers that will have people that are not just going to spew uh, you know in the political realm i think that's that's starting to happen albeit very slowly because you know thanks to some politicians not all of which are in the u.s you know there's a there's a threat on you know what's credible journalism and constant attacks for political purposes now that i think is having a knock-on on all sorts of things and i think linux journal has just been caught up in that um uh, i don't know if you know, the open source world is going to offer any solutions that aren't going to be available in the broader world. You, you are absolutely right in saying that this is the beginning of a much longer argument. And I don't, or I won't say argument, maybe it's discussion is the right word here as opposed to argument. But I don't think, I really don't think that pendulum is going to swing the way that you think it will. I think that there's definitely a possibility of some kind of, you know, I hate the word curation, but um, some, some kind of way of trying to figure out over time what information is actually more valuable. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be valuable economically, okay? That means that, yeah, people, are, people may have a better way of filtering out crap from the stuff that is actually, uh, you know, that's actually true that's actually uh, valuable in terms of doing whatever it is you need to do. If it's Linux, you know, if it's Linux and open source software, how to use certain things or how to work with certain things or whatever. But I don't know that it's going to go back to the point where people are willing to pay for that content. I think there's a bit of a blip with some of the larger organizations like the New York Times that have actually built up their subscription base over the last few years. But, but I think that's a blip. I think that the move to free and in this case, I'm talking about free as in beer, okay, is unstoppable. It actually is not going anywhere. And at the risk of getting political, I think this is one of those places where, you know, Andrew Yang in the United States has got a good idea, the idea of some kind of, you know, universal basic income. There has to be a way to make it possible for people to provide, whether it's information or art or or, you know, or uh, useful content on, you know, on current events or whatever, but not have to worry about where the money is coming from because the money is not going to come. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yank the conversation back away from American politics or else I'm going to get extremely depressed. <laughs> okay. Shall we, shall so, we move but, on to but, a different but, topic then? Well, no, I just, there's just one mm. thing though. I mean, when you talk about free as in beer, I mean, remember, television and radio have always been available to the public until you had subscription services. Off-the-air TV has always been free as in beer. AM radio, FM radio has always been free as in beer. These concepts are not necessarily novel to the world. 
And so where I see the pendulum swimming, swinging back doesn't necessarily mean to subscription services, but the kind of curation you're talking about. You're starting to see it on Spotify. You're starting to see it elsewhere where you have people who are being known for having decent playlists, for mm -hmm. having recommendations, almost curation, almost the same way as a radio DJ used to pick, here's what I think are the hits. You're going to start to see, I think, Spotify playlists and various video playlists and various people who will be trusted to say, hey, look, at this is new. This is something you should consider. These people are going to monetize themselves through advertising. Ah, there we go. Right. And, and so you're seeing this in its very infant form in the, you know, in, in this horrible, uh, this horrible phenomenon right now of the YouTube influencer. Yeah, but you're, uh, you're, you're, you're being way too optimistic here. I mean, let, sorry, I'm going to interrupt <laughs> you because you, you jumped on, you jumped on advertising through advertising. I think advertising is responsible for us being in the mess that we're in at the moment in a large way. We've decided that the way that you provide free stuff, and this happened with television and radio in the beginning, was mm -hmm. to provide advertising. So now we've got things like Spotify or Google Play Music or Amazon Prime Video or whatever. And the reason that people are willing to pay for those subscriptions is people are sick to death of having of being advertised at. I know they find ways to get the advertising in there in some other way, shape, or form. But, but even things like ad blockers, it's like, okay, so I provide a great service with, again, I'll use that word, curated content, and, you know, and, and I've got good writers, and I've got good people, and I've got good information on my site. And I'm trying to keep the lights on with advertising, which, again, I think was a bad way to go in the first place. We're trying to keep the lights on with advertising. So what do people do? They use ad blockers. The same people who say that they care about what you're doing and what you're producing are blocking the very mechanism by which you do make money. I, I, I agree. And part of that has been the fault of internet advertisers for doing some of these horribly intrusive ads. Uh, but like, you know, I, I use an ad blocker, but at the same time, I subscribe to a lot of services. I have no problem paying for content if I think it's worthwhile. Well, you so, know what? I don't use an ad blocker. I believe that part of the inherent agreement that I make with providers of content on websites, okay, is that I help pay to keep their lights on by letting them put the ads on the website. I think it's an inherent um, it's an inherent contract. It's an unspoken contract between you and the site that provides the content. I'm not saying I like seeing the advertising, okay? But if that's the means by which those people keep the lights on, then I'll let them keep displaying the ads at me. I, I don't believe in ad blockers. I think in, in many ways they're kind of immoral. <laughs> well, I, I have an ad blocker, but I have it turned off for, an, for, turned off for a lot of sites. So somebody as nice as saying, hey, we noticed you've got an ad blocker. Please turn it off. Nine out of 10 times, I'll turn it off. Um, you know, if, if somebody's hitting me with stuff that is either obtrusive or obnoxious, I don't have a problem with it. But if somebody says, you know, hey, if you find this of value, I make my money off selling off, off, off ad revenue. Please turn off your ad blocker. I'll turn it off. And in fact, my exception list is huge on my ad blocker. But um, 
you know, there's still so much obnoxious stuff out there. Oh, I'm well aware of it. I'm well aware so, of it. I, so my, I, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say that I liked it. <laughs> so my, my default, my p default position is to have it off on for the obnoxious stuff and off for just about anything that I find useful. Yeah. My default position is to just not have an ad blocker installed period. It's, and, and I guess as, as content creators, that should probably be the default position. So maybe I'm just being naughty here. Yeah, the only place where I get around that and, and I see it as different, and I'll put different in italics and air quotes and everything, is I actually pay for a um, YouTube uh, premium subscription, which means I don't see the ads on YouTube videos. But my understanding is that YouTube calculates views and provides uh, content creators, whoever they may be, with whatever revenue they would get if I was seeing the ads in the first place. Right, and so your subscription amount is simply replacing the bingo. ad revenue micropayment that they would get. Bingo, in other words, I'm saying, look, I don't wanna be bothered with the ads. I still want the content creator to make money you know, uh, to be able to continue creating content, but I'm willing to pay a monthly fee so that I don't have to look at the ads and you just take care of making sure that people get paid. Right. And so uh, probably wouldn't surprise you to know that I also am part of the YouTube premium, though I have it through a family plan. Uh, but also the same thing. There's free Spotify. I pay for my Spotify. Uh, I, you know, like I say, I have no... I have no problem paying for content. Uh, and, you know, uh, content, content creators are, are struggling out there. And I think right now we're still in the midst of everybody trying to figure out the best way to do this. You have everything out there. So you have crowdfunding. Uh, there's a couple of religiously minded YouTube channels that have basically said, uh, we're we're demonetized by Google for whatever reason because we do something on religious commentary and if you do something religious you're no doubt going to win. So that means that Google will demonetize them and they have no choice to either go to the you know Patreon or that kind of thing. And so you have some sites that are still trying to get by on a subscription model. Some are doing it. You know, an example of one organization that's doing okay on the subscription model is the Young Turks political site. Um, and so they have a free version and they have a member version and they seem to be doing okay selling memberships. Is it totally replacing the money that was, that was put into, into media before? No, but not everyone is starving from it. No, and I don't suggest that everyone is. I mean, let's face it, there are always stars out there and there are always going to be stars out there. Um, but unfortunately, most of us in the world are not stars. We're not the ones that, you know, almost, even if you take a look at all the books that are public, I mean, go into your local bookstore if you still actually go into a brick and mortar uh, bookstore go into one of those stores or go on Amazon and take a look at their book section if you want to just have a look at it electronically and make a note of every one of the authors that are out there selling books or stories or whatever. 
And keep in mind that almost every single one of those people, you know, like 99% of them have another job because being a writer just doesn't pay enough to keep a roof over your head, send your kids to school, uh, you know, put gas in your car, that sort of thing. Um, yes, there are other ways to pull in stuff, but I don't know. I, I'm actually, I am actually an optimist, but I don't think that I'm as optimistic as you seem to be in terms of the idea that somehow we're going to come up with a revenue model that doesn't just come down to, let's just make sure that people have the money to operate. Um, well, I, I don't think I've been called an optimist as many times <laughs> as I've had in this conversation in a long, long time. And, and so I'll, I'll take it because, um, you know, having a little optimism, I guess, just means I have something to hope for and point to and, and hopefully am able to do my little bit to affect the change in that direction. But, you know, um, this world is still very much shaking out. You know, we're about to see uh, both Disney and Apple come out with their streaming services yep. soon. And they're going to be doing this. You know, every time I go to The Guardian, they're begging me to try and, uh, yep. and be a member. And so it, it's all still, I, I still feel like we're just at the beginning of, of, of this whole thing. And I think there's still a lot of shakeout to come. Am I necessarily optimistic about the results? I don't know. Uh, there's part of me thinks I have no choice be, to be optimistic because I still want to have good sources of content. Uh, I'm a little fearful that uh, just when we thought that going to the internet was going to you know, be able to bring all your content in one place, we're now going to be going back to a system of walled gardens, though instead of TV networks, they're going to be streaming channels. Yeah, have their own exclusive stuff. And okay, Netflix, you can't have Star Wars because we're putting it on the Disney Channel and everyone's going back into their little kingdoms. Yeah, I don't I, I, I think that that's a, um, a symptom of the shakedown that you're talking about of, of the um, let's call it the evolution of uh, providing content. What I think will likely happen is that you're going to wind up with local providers in the same way that you had, um, you know, maybe they'll be local, maybe they'll be uh, sectioned off by countries, I don't know. But you're going to pay some fixed amount of money for somebody that passes a number of these things through your door without you having to subscribe to 10 different things. And uh, the example that I think about, um, and uh, I'm not saying that it's a brilliant example, but it's 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 sort of a hint of what's happening is Crave TV here in Canada. Um, they, are they are providing subscription services that bundle a bunch of things together. So you get a subscription with them, which is typically done through your cable company, Rogers, for instance. And then all of a sudden you've got Showtime and HBO and, you know, and uh, CBS All Access, that sort of thing all wrapped our stars, you know, like a variety of these different networks that are individual subscription pay networks, but you're not paying for them that way. You're getting them through this umbrella uh, provider. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to go down this road with me because if you're <laughs> going to talk about Crave, you're going to start to open that Pandora's box that is my visceral hatred of everything to do with Bell Canada. 
Well, and you know what? Um, let's 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 not go down that way. But let me point <laughs> out that Pandora's box isn't a box; it's a pithos. Uh, yeah, I could I could do. We could have an entire conversation on the evils of Bell, um, and and but that's a different. All story. right, all right. Let's 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 not go down that road. Let's not go down that road. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do a special edition of just you and me bitching about uh, cable companies or Ellen Rogers. Well, especially the Canadian ones. I can't well, speak exactly because, you know, because we pay more than everybody else in the entire world for this stuff. Yeah. Hey, let's do let's do one more thing and then uh, maybe we should wrap it up for this one. Let's do this one. Virtual. Linux security. There's apparently a new uh, there's apparently a new um, uh, exploit out there. And ransomware. Ran well, ransomware. Yes, there's a, there's a new ransomware out there, and uh, it's uh, it's apparently making the rounds. They're talking about the idea that several thousand servers have been infected with this thing, and um, it's called Illocked, I L L O C K E D. And the reason it's called that is because it encrypts a variety of files on your system, not system files, but a variety of files like text files and HTML files and stuff like that. And what you find out is that you have a, um, you have a, um, a file on your system that, um, that has an extension now. So like, let's say that you had a document called my document just for, you know, to be completely unoriginal. My document right. is now called my document dot lilocked. Sorry, not illocked. Lilock, L-I-L-O-C-K-E-D. And that's how you can tell the infection because you've got these files with these extensions. And then you wind up getting an email message or some kind of a message, or actually it's left in a readme file that tells you to go to a particular site on the internet and deposit, uh, you know, uh, $300 US in Bitcoins or something like that. Yeah. Um, and reading a little further, I'm not sure if this is complete, but apparently the main infection point is old versions of the XM mailer. Yes, I read so, that as well, which kind of blows my mind. Um, uh, like, first of all, I didn't know that Exim was much of a thing anymore. So, <laughs> so. Uh, well, I mean, inertia is, you know, strong. Agreed. And so in the realm of if it's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, there's probably, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there's still lots of good old send mail stuff hanging around. Uh -huh. um, and so this might just be systems that have been on, a, on a autopilot for a long time and not only haven't switched from XM to some other mailer, but also haven't upgraded their XM. So it's sort of like uh, out of the entire world, this has affected a couple of thousand sites, which makes me think that they haven't found too many places to infect. But anybody who is sort of maintaining their own self-hosted site uh, and they are not keeping their software up to speed. Um, this is like, I, I guess the big eye opener is that Linux people can't go around anymore and saying, hey, we're immune to this stuff. All right, can, can, I, can I register a complaint? Please. I want to register a complaint. The complaint that I want to register, <laughs> the complaint that I want to register is, if true, if the vector is XM, then this is not a Linux vulnerability. It's an Exim vulnerability. And uh, maybe, maybe what we're doing here is we're coming right back around to, uh, you know, the opening discussion on Richard Stallman, which is give credit where credit is due and beat up on the people that require beating up. If it's actually a problem with Exim, then that is 
that is the issue. It's not Linux servers. I mean, it's it, if XSIM oh. ran on Windows servers, I, are there still Windows servers out there? Uh, but if XSIM ran on that, then, you know, it would, it's kind of hard to say, oh, it, it attacks Linux servers. Now, the, the XSIM... If somebody did a headline... Guaranteed at this point. But if somebody did a headline, ransomware attacks XSIM systems, <laughs> uh, would, nobody would read it. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of clickbaity in that sense. But it's it not is. It is clickbaity until you but, know that it actually has something to do with a Linux operating system, you know, or the Linux kernel, or some inherent vulnerability in Linux itself. Yeah, it's clickbaity. But that and so it's an old mailer. People should probably pay attention. And so it's not only an old mailing system, but it's an old mailing system that hasn't been maintained. Yes. So can you even blame the software at that point? Yeah. Okay. All right. I, but, but right there, you're right there. You're sort of, uh, you're sort of hitting up on, uh, on the complaint. You know, it's just an extension of my complaint, which is the idea. Once something is no longer maintained or no longer in general use, like shouldn't you probably have moved on to something else by now? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's like you know, I mean, I I was I was as happy to beat up on any on Microsoft as anybody you know any free software dude out there. Hey, I wrote a book called Kiss the Blue Screen of Death Goodbye. So I mean, I was perfectly happy to beat up on them. But you know what? If somebody out there is being targeted by some exploit that hits Windows ninety five PCs, I I don't have any. I, I have very little sympathy at this point. And I can't even I can't even build up the uh, I, I can't even build up the excitement or the anger against Microsoft if I if I wanted to I don't want to but if I wanted to I couldn't do it because it's an ancient 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 system that nobody should be using anymore. Well, it, I, I'd go further than that. How could even somebody think of blaming Microsoft for an infection of a site that hasn't had a security upgrade in ages? You know, we're constantly playing whack-a-mole between the people that are trying to exploit us and the people that are trying to fight off the exploits. And by now, anybody who is maintaining a system on the net uh, needs to know this game of whack-a-mole is going on. And if they don't keep up, this is going to happen. And it's not a Linux problem or a Windows problem. It's a, you know, keep your system current problem exactly and this is why we need superheroes because the super villains are making their appearances now so i mean the good <laughs> thing is at least as 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 a, as a user of a linux desktop and and home servers you know it's nice having these routines that are constantly doing automatic upgrades in the background mm -hmm. and windows has started to finally catch up with that but i we've been used to having this both in, in RPM and, and app systems for ages. Um, but uh, somebody who doesn't have those kind of auto updates on um, either needs to be really vigilant about manually updating them mm -hmm. or is going to get hurt. 